I want to say a couple things on the front end here before we jump into the text itself um, about what we're doing here. Um, this question of what the Bible has to say about homosexuality is, is, is super important. And we're going to get into some meaty stuff today um, that may be a little bit hard to follow, but it's important for us uh, to know that s- the witness of Scripture is quite clear on this. Um, Something we must always do when approaching difficult issues uh, that can be very personal is to check ourself and our attitudes. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you don't get a seat at the table uh, to answer hard questions like this until you've done some real spiritual and Bible homework. Um, and that's what we're trying to do here. We will get to the questions uh, soon of how do we as believers respond? How does the church respond? Um, we will get to issues of uh, how, how do you extend love and grace and mercy uh, to those who believe that perhaps what you're saying about their sin is called hate speech? Um, how do you respond in situations like that? Um, we'll get there. We'll get to the, the part where a gracious, loving, merciful, a, a God who loves to extend uh, grace and mercy to sinners, we'll get to that part eventually here. But last week and this week and, and probably next week as well, uh, we're going to spend some some serious time looking at the case for how Scripture is clear on this. Um, I had originally said we're going to do six passages. We'll probably just do two. One today that is representative of the others that are listed next to it. Uh, and then next week, we'll probably just touch on Romans 1 because there's a ton of content there. So my quasi-apologies for not getting to all six. Um, we'll have plenty of fodder for what we're studying here between these two or three weeks. What is a vice list? Maybe something about the Bible you've not heard of before. Uh, You're probably familiar with it if you've read the Bible at all. There are two kinds of lists like this that show up all over Scripture. Vice lists and virtue lists. They are what they sound like. Uh, A vice list is a list of, for lack of nuance for now, bad things. Uh, A virtue list is a list of good things. Uh, There are different ways that these are used throughout Scripture. We're going to look at how Paul uses uh, one in particular here pretty soon. Uh, But for example, vice lists can be the things that come from the flesh, the things that come from worldly attitudes, the things that come from a heart that is bent on sin. Virtue lists show the kinds of things that come out of a, a regenerate heart, a person led by the Spirit. Uh, you probably know lots of these kinds of passages. A good example of a virtue list um, that you may know is Philippians 4.8. Uh, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, or admirable, it lists those just right, one right after another, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, like those things, then think about such things. That's what Paul says there in Philippians 4. That's an example of a virtue list. Uh, Another virtue list, probably many of you have heard about this one. It's at the end of Galatians 5. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those nine things are listed there, one after another, to give us a picture, a picture of what the Spirit produces in a regenerate life. So those are some good examples of virtue lists. 
Uh, a good example of a vice list might be Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 5 to 6. And yes, we're intentionally choosing nothing but Pauline examples. Uh, Pauline's a fancy word for from Paul. Uh, Colossians 3, 5 to 6 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, earthly, fleshly, bad, that comes from this heart of sin, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So you get the idea of these lists. Now, there are two things about these lists that are particularly germane for today that are real important for what we're going to say, especially about 1 Corinthians 6. It's also indicative of 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 10, but we're not going to get to that today. Two things. Number one, and this is just the case with most of these lists, they are generally not exhaustive lists. The first thing that's important for us to know is that these are generally not exhaustive lists, but they are generally a picture, a description of what is meant by what comes before and after that list. So it's, it's giving some color to it. It's a description. It's a picture. It's not necessarily meant to be exhaustive. Uh, Galatians 5 that we just talked about helps prove the point. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident or obvious in the NIV. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and so on. And he finishes up in 21, says envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then he says, and things like these. Meaning, I'm not going to list them all for you now, but these are the kinds of things I'm talking about. Uh, For example, for Paul, he particularly puts things in these lists that are germane, that, that are important, that apply to the contexts to which he was writing. So there in Galatians, uh, there are issues that he has to deal with. And so he's putting those things in the list. But he says, but that's not everything. That's not everything. It's a picture. It's a description of those kinds of things. Second thing about these vice lists that are important to us. We're not talking about a virtue list here soon. We're talking about a vice list. So that's why I'm focusing on it. And, and specifically for Paul, vice lists are often in the context, uh, of the wider context of judgment at the end of time. They're, they're warning passages quite often for Paul. These vices are listed in places where he's saying this picture of these kinds of behaviors in a person's life as a pattern of their life means you're in danger. You're in danger of eternal damnation, of of eternal separation from God, if that's what characterizes you. That's the kind of passages they often show up in, those vice lists, which makes sense. Um, along with the two, uh, I'm sorry, along with the one that we'll look at in just a moment, uh, Galatians 5.21 that we just mentioned is a good example of this. He's listed all those vices in a couple verses, and then he says this, vice versa. Verse 21, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, things like he just listed, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, those two things help us with 1 Corinthians 6. Because they are a picture, that first part of the the list, they're a picture of the behavioral practices of the unregenerate life, the the, the dead life, the not spirit life. They're a picture of an unregenerate life that is in danger of eternal damnation. Those two things are happening in our passage here today. So that's an important part of the context for us here. So let's jump in. Let's just read this whole passage, 6, 9 through 11 together, and then we'll jump back in and make some comment along the way to understand what's going on here. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's some of that warning there, some of that judgment. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. That's the phrase we'll come back to and spend a whole bunch of time on. A whole bunch of time on. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice at the beginning it says kingdom of God. At the end of that list it says kingdom of God. He's bracketing it there, saying this is important stuff I'm talking about right here. Then verse 11 says, and such, in other words, in keeping with those words, some of those words applied to you, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now jump back in there at verse 9. And we'll start there in just a second after I give you a little bit of uh, context about what's going on here in this this passage uh, around it here. Before it, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth uh, that that honestly is just a total mess. It's just a total mess. And uh, the church needs, uh, frankly, the church needs some discipline. We talk about church discipline, Christian discipline. This is an example of that in the wider context. And so he writes them um, because they were taking their problems, their dissensions, their, their, their disunity, they were taking their internal problems outside of the kingdom. They were taking them to the law courts and they were suing one another over these internal problems that they were having that had all manner of ugliness to them. So Paul was concerned about that. And he was telling the Corinthians that they were not free to bring lawsuits against one another, against one's own brothers and sisters in the family. And here's what he's doing. This is a little bit foreign of a concept to us because lawsuits are so common. Suing is uh, you know, all over the place. It's a very litigious society that we live in today. So, so this is going to sound a little bit harsh, but, but this is what Paul is saying. He is equating what he thinks is self-indulgent behavior, meaning that internal lawsuits among believers, he's saying that's self-indulgent behavior. That's not selfless like Christ. That's selfish like the world and like flesh, like a vice. He's equating that kind of self-indulgent lawsuits among believers things with the kind of self-indulgence that he lists in the passage we just read. Which is why he starts off in verse 9. He amps it up in verse 9 and says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, to us today, for him to to sort of equate, you know, being litigious with one another with the kinds of things that are in this vice list sounds like, I I mean, is it crazy? It's kind of harsh. But that's very much the intent of what he has here is to say this is self-indulgent behavior. This isn't what marks a believer who has the Spirit working to, to, to demonstrate likeness to Christ. This is selfishness. So he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, You're living like those unrighteous people. Then he says this, Do not be deceived. He says, Here are the marks of the unrighteousness that marks the unbelievers that characterize them. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. He's listing these like bullet points, just one after another. He's saying, 
Don't be deceived. These things, bullet points, one right after another, are demonstrative of those who live from the flesh, who are in danger of the lake of fire. He says, Neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, will come to that phrase in just a second, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, notice uh, that each item in this list, these bullet-pointed items, every single one of them is a noun. Every single one of these things listed is a noun. He's almost using these words as titles for these people. And that's an important thing to, to sort of catch here. He's using these as a way of saying, this is like, you do this so much, your name is now Swindler. That's, that's the pattern of your life. I mean, that's, that's what you're producing in your life. So it's so much the case that, that you are now a swindler. He lists it just like that. They've become labels after their persistent sin has taken over so that they are a drunkard, a reviler, that they are an adulterer, an idolater. He's not talking here, and this is an important nuance as we go into this issue of practice of homosexuality. Paul is not talking about an isolated act of unrighteousness. He's talking about a whole way of life pursued persistently by those who indicate by their behavior that they would be aliens in the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 11, and we'll, we'll end up here later on after we talk ad nauseum about that phrase earlier. We'll end up in verse 11 where he says, and such were some of you. That's how you used to be characterized. But you're not now. We'll come back to that and end there later. Now the main issue in this whole passage is that phrase, men who practice homosexuality. And it's made up of two words. It's made up of two words that are pushed together to make this one concept of men who practice homosexuality. We'll show you the first word here in just a second. It's called malakoi. It's M-A-L-A-K-O-I if you're taking notes. I'm going to use this word a bunch of times here soon, so remember that, malakoi. The second word we'll show you here now in just a second. You may want to write this down now so you can follow along later. Is arsenokoitai. A-R-S-E-N-O-K-O-I-T-A-I. Those two words pushed together make this phrase, men who practice homosexuality. So let's talk about the first one here, malakoi. Let's talk about the meaning of this word. Everybody agrees that in its most basic form, this word means the soft ones. The soft ones. Everybody agrees on that. And what they generally mean by that is, is effeminacy, uh, you know, men who look and act like women. And, and the basics of the debate is that those who believe that Scripture says that homosexuality is okay say this is just a general term about men who look and act effeminate, period. Like just generally. And Paul says, hey, li listen, it's not just that. It's not just that. It is the whole shooting match. In fact, it is men who act like women sexually as the passive partner. That's the whole debate right there about this word. In fact, that's a, a big debate with both of these words in a lot of places where this comes up. So here's the, here's the whole issue in just a few sentences. Here's the whole gist of the debate and the argument that we're making here. 
There are indeed some uses of this word, malakoi, in, in ancient Greek literature uh, that refer to prostituting passive homosexuals. Two things there, prostituting and passive homosexuals. So those who believe that Scripture is okay with the practice of homosexuality believe that this word is only condemning people who are prostituting themselves and those who are the passive recipients as opposed to a consensual relationship, which they say the Bible doesn't know anything about, which is not true. And we'll talk a lot about that next week. Um, but given, here's the argument we're making basically here in just a second. Given everything we know about Greek culture and language and the context of Scripture, uh, and the, the fact that Paul places uh, homosexuality only, exclusively, in lists of offenses that exclude from the kingdom if they are the characterization of one's life, given those things, this word uh, malakoi or soft ones means effeminate males who play the sexual role of females as the passive recipient. So, this is a bit convoluted, a little bit difficult, but I want to tell you something that is helpful for us. Here's an example of a parallel scenario where Paul condemns something but he doesn't say it results in exclusion from the kingdom. Here he says this is something that results in exclusion from the kingdom. But let me, let me show you a different example of something we see all over the place in Scripture. There are many places where Paul says something is inappropriate. There's this inappropriate behavior. But in those places in Scripture, he doesn't say this is the kind of thing that excludes you from the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that. He says this is inappropriate behavior that is not in fitting with somebody who has the Spirit in them. But it's not the kind of thing that's going to make you lose, lose one standing with God. In 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16, that's a good example because it's a part of this immediate context here. In 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16, Paul argues... Very strongly, uh, in fact, it seems kind of foreign to us, but he argues strongly there that women who pray and prophesy should wear a veil in, in Corinth there. He notes that short hair is natural for men and long hair for women. And, and in lots of appeals, uh, he, he doesn't suggest at any time that inappropriate headgear or hairstyle is going to lead to exclusion from the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, in, in all those places where there's inappropriate behavior but doesn't exclude you from the kingdom of God, we don't find homosexuality listed in any of those kinds of places. In other words, all we see in a place like this and in Scripture is homosexuality put in the context of things that are meant to be uh, exclusionary from the kingdom of God if they become the pattern, if they become the way that one is characterized. Now, those who see no condemnation of homosexuality in Scripture, believe this word malakoi only refers to a general, just a general effeminacy in men. In other words, men acting like women in general ways without the sexual connotation. They say that because according to them, there is no, outside of the Bible, there's no extra biblical evidence that shows that word malakoi used other than with general effeminacy. Hope that makes sense. They argue that that's the only way we see that word used outside of the Bible, but that is not true. Uh, there's one great example. Philo, P-H-I-L-O, was a first century Jewish aristocrat. He was a, 
he's a great source for us of what life was like back then. And he was a Jew who, who wrote a lot about history. He and Josephus uh, are important parts of these discussions. Philo twice uses the word uh, malakoi alongside another term in his discussion of homosexual behavior to refer to the behavior of passive homosexual partners who cultivate feminine features. Remember, those who think that homosexuality in the Bible say it's just about general feminacy, not about the sexual connotation. Well, here we see two examples in Philo where he puts that together with the idea of the sexual connotation. He describes men who braid their hair and who use makeup and excessive perfume in an effort to please their male lovers. But he doesn't limit it. He doesn't limit it to this general effeminacy. And so Philo was using this word, malakoi, as a synonym for a well-known Greek concept. Uh, K-I-N-A-I-D-O-S, that's the, the concept, kinaidos. Kinaidos was a man who, out of a desire to be penetrated by other men permanently as, as the way that he acted out sexually, Philo uses that word malakoi as a parallel, as a synonym for that other word. So that's the kind of thing that is an example for us that even, even if people might want to say, well, things outside of Scripture don't say that, so this use of the word malakoi here must mean something different. Well, that's one, actually it's a couple examples of outside of Scripture using the word in a, in a very specific way like Scripture does hope that makes sense. It's only going to get a little more convoluted. So to wrap up this uh, Malakoi question here, um, but there are other things that we could talk about with this, but just wrap it up this way by saying it would be a mistake to assume that for Paul and for Philo, only those p- passive homosexual partners who feminized their appearance would be considered worthy of exclusion from God's kingdom or worthy of death if we assume that Leviticus held in the Jewish community here. What bothered Paul in this passage with reference to this word is any act of sexual intercourse between two people of the same sex had nothing to do with the dress or the hairstyle or makeup or anything like that. This was not just about general effeminacy. This was about specifically the sexual act. So Malakoi should be understood as any passive partner in homosexual intercourse. Uh, any passive partner in homosexual intercourse. Now the next word, we'll put it up there again. Arsenokoitai. A-R-S-E-N-O-K-O-I-T-A-I. Up there you can write it down if you'd like. It's placed right next to Malakoi, and that's where we get this phrase, men who practice homosexuality. The second word, arsenicoatai, literally it means bedders of males, males who, who bed other males, men who take other men to bed. It is what we call, and this is a cool word for the uh, word nerds, it's a neologism. It's a, it's a new word. It's, it's something that shows up, at least as we know, as far as we know, the first time here in 1 Corinthians 6. That may mean Paul made up the word. It may mean he used a word that he saw somewhere, but we don't have other evidence of it. 
Uh, it's what we call a neologism. It's a new word. It's occurring for the first time here in 1 Corinthians 6. It also occurs, it also occurs in 1 Timothy uh, 1.10. Now, those who believe that the Bible allows the practice of homosexuality claim that the Bible's concern here is only with exploitation of others. Only with exploitation of others brought about by some, not even all, forms of homosexual behavior. That might include things like uh, forcible uh, sexual rape, uh, incest, uh, those kinds of things. It also included pederasty, which is um, man and uh, boy relationships that were kind, kind of common among some parts of Greek culture. Um, so those who believe that the Bible allows the practice of homosexuality claim that the Bible's concern is just with those types of exploitative things and that consensual homosexual relationships that are monogamous, that can, quote, last for life as a, quote, marriage, are acceptable because the Bible didn't know of those kinds of things like we have today. That's, that's, by the way, that's the basic gist of the entire argument for those who condone homosexuality in Scripture. Uh, they basically say that what we have today as an issue of, of monogamous, long-term, so-called marriages, that that concept didn't exist in the Bible, and that's just flat out not true. We have lots of evidence, more and more evidence, in fact, actually that shows that, uh, that they did know about that. Uh, the Jews especially um, knew about that and wrote against that. So, those who believe the Bible says it's okay say that the Bible's only worried about exploitative forms of homosexual behavior. However, like I just talked about, outside of the Bible, there are, after Paul using this, there are at least ten texts and sources outside of the Bible where this word shows up. Every single time that it shows up, the person who uses it is very clearly trying to communicate that homosexual intercourse that is not merely exploitative, but could also be what they called consensual, that every single time the person uses this word, they condemn not simply rape or incest or pederasty. They're not just condemning the uh, exploitative things. They're condemning homosexual behavior in all of its forms. Uh, which is part of why Paul uses the word sometimes porneia uh, to mean any sexual immorality outside of the bounds of what we talked about the first couple of weeks of God's design for one man and one woman marriage. Now, um, that's enough on that point. Let's skip that point. Because um, it's hard to understand anyway. A few other pieces of evidence for this word are senekoatai. A few other pieces of evidence for this word that it refers to, that it refers to all forms of homosexual behavior. Uh, this by itself doesn't prove the case, but it's a piece of the argument. This is a cumulative case. It, but it does help us. Some believe that this word, arsenicoatai, refers only to pederasty. Some believe that it refers to all forms of exploitative homosexuality. But, but some believe that it's just referring to pederasty. But they already had a term for that. And had Paul intended to speak against pederasty specifically, he would have used the word <laughs> pederasty. He would have used that word. Because that was the specific term, the technical term for that kind of 
behavior and relationship. Now, that by itself doesn't make the case, but it's a piece of the evidence. Second, there is good evidence, uh, and we just flat out don't have time for it, and it's kind of annoyingly complicated, but there is good evidence that Paul perhaps created this word, he coined this word from the way that the Greek Old Testament was translated. Let me, let me explain that. Some of you have heard me talk a little bit here and there about the Septuagint. Uh, Septuagint just means 70. Uh, if you see the capitals LXX, that's the Septuagint. The Septuagint uh, was commissioned by uh, King Ptolemy of Egypt and uh, 70, maybe 72 uh, scholars came together and they translated the Old Testament Hebrew Bible into Greek. That's the Septuagint. This happened, it was done by the time of the 2nd century B.C. So it was done probably something like, off the top of my head, 150-ish. Somebody out there probably knows better than me. 150-ish years before Christ came, um, the Septuagint was uh, basically complete. This Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is very helpful for us to know sometimes what the New Testament writers might have meant by words they use because they would have had examples of this Septuagint. They would have known the words used. So it helps us understand sometimes what Paul might have meant. And there's good evidence that Paul probably took some ideas from the words used in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 that we talked about last week and used some of those ideas to coin this very word, arsenikoetai, which is super cool. And uh, here's a part of that argument there. A good question that's related to this issue of the connection between the Septuagint and Paul. If arsenikoetai here in Paul only refers to exploitative forms of homosexuality, if that's the case, and there is a connection between Paul's use of the Septuagint, then Leviticus 18 and 20 does not refer to all forms of homosexual behavior, but may refer just to exploitative forms of sexual behavior, homosexual behavior. But, <laughs> but, um, Leviticus 18 and 20 do refer to all forms of homosexual practice and behavior like we talked about last week. So um, that helps, helps us understand perhaps where the term came from and what it means. Another thing here uh, that we're going to skip because we're going to skip. Now this last part I want to give you here before we jump back to the end here, verse 11. A little bit complicated. And this whole, this whole argument here comes from the idea that one man and one woman marriage is the assumption of all the Bible writers. That all the writers of the Bible assume that from places like Genesis 2.24 that we talked about last week. From the idea that God's purposes in creating that context of marriage to be fruitful and multiply works with one man and one woman. That's the only way that it works. That's the complementarity we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago. So the context of our passage in 1 Corinthians 6 makes clear why both of these words, malakoi and arsenikoetai, belong with all forms of homosexual practice and not just specific ones. These words mark participation in a form of sexual behavior 
other than that which is sanctioned in the context of Genesis 2.24, monogamous, uh, heterosexual, long-term marriage. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul draws on the Levitical prohibitions that we talked about some last week. It's those places in Leviticus that prohibit uh, homosexual behavior. In Corinthians 5, we know, we know that Paul draws on those, on those prohibitions of incest and, uh, and it's listed there as incestuous behavior in Pornea in Leviticus 18 and 20. We know that in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul draws on that, which reinforces our supposition that Paul had in mind Leviticus against male same-sex intercourse when he refers to our Senecoatai in 1 Corinthians 6.9. More evidence for this. There's an overlap of some words that are used in 1 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, our passage today, there's some overlap in those vice lists that indicates that all unrepentant participants in this idea of porneia, meaning anything outside sexual immorality, outside the bounds of marriage, there's evidence that indicates that all unrepentant participants in porneia are to be expelled from the community of believers this is what church discipline is for. This is why church discipline is in the New Testament. Are to be expelled, and it sounds, it sounds heartless, but it's actually love. To be expelled from the community of believers in a final and desperate bid to keep them from being excluded from God's kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20 forbid all porneia, on the grounds that it joins in a one flesh union two people other than husband and wife. Let me say that again because it's an important part of what we're saying here. 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20 forbid all porneia on the grounds that it joins a one flesh union between two people other than man and woman. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul takes up the subject of marriage. And there he once more expresses this concern that there be no porneia, no sexual immorality outside the bounds of one man and one woman marriage. It is because of that concern that he modifies his wish that all Christians be unmarried like himself and advises married couples against abstaining from sex for any lengthy period of time. A little bit complicated, but I like where he heads. Like four of you are like, that's funny. In 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, he picks up Jesus' own command and he forbids remarriage of divorced women on the grounds that remarriage while one's first spouse is still alive constitutes porneia outside the bounds of one man and one woman marriage. Let me say that again. Very important part of this. In 1 Corinthians 7, he picks up Jesus' own command. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 19 and somewhere in Mark, I believe, picks up in Genesis 2.24. And uh, Paul picks up Jesus' own command and forbids remarriage of divorced women on the grounds that remarriage while one's first spouse is still alive constitutes porneia or adultery outside the bounds of marriage. 
at the end of the chapter in 739, he again affirms that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So given, given this exclusive attention to heterosexual unions, let me say that again, given this exclusive attention to heterosexual unions, is it reasonable to conclude that Paul had only some forms of same-sex marriage in view in 1 Corinthians 6-9? No, no. Uh, as if this were not enough, there are another two or three pages I've skipped of, of things that still just scratch the surface. In 1 Corinthians 6-9, when he puts together Malakoi and Arsenicoetai, what you get is a phrase that means at least men who practice homosexuality and perhaps even those who practice homosexuality. Now, as I said earlier, we'll end with verse 11, which is a fitting place for us to end when we talk about uh, weighty and, and, and difficult and important topics like what the Bible has to say about the practice of homosexuality. I want you to see here in this passage, we've been talking about the vice lists, these things that, that are labels and names for the practice of an unregenerate life. I want you to see the contrast Paul makes from that life, the B.C. to the A.D. here. Let's just read the whole thing here. Verses 9 through 11. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this, And such, and like that, were some of you. And then he says this, this is great, this is cool. He says, But you, in a contrast, but you, who name Christ as Lord, you, who know Jesus' righteousness, you, who trust in His perfect, sinless life for you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In, in, the, in the Greek, it's, it's an emphatic but you were. But you were. But you were. In most of our English translations, it just says, but you were, you were, you were. Paul is saying, it, it is so emphatic, I need to say this every single time as a contrast from what was to what is because of what we have in the person of Jesus. He says, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, we were washed. Sins washed. Symbolized, cleansed in the waters of baptism. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of our works, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We were also sanctified. Our lives were set apart for God's purposes. First Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Then he says this, That you may proclaim the excellency, the excellencies of Him who called you, of Him who called you out of darkness into His light. 
This is the gospel in basic form here, friends. Washed, sanctified, justified. To say we are justified is to say that we are clothed in the perfection of Jesus' sinless life for us. Because when He came, He lived a perfect sinless life and gave us that credit that we don't deserve. Which is to say, (laughs) which is to say, we have vice lists that know no end, friends. We have vice lists that were not for the great exchange of His perfect life for us would damn us all. The great thing about the Gospel, friends, is that the life of Jesus is an infinite virtue list. Whatever those vices were, name them. Say them. That's what you were called. That's what you were named. That's what the evil one characterized you as. The beauty of the Gospel of Jesus is that there is an eternal, infinite virtue list that makes up for everything. Makes up for it all for us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, we're talking about hard things here. And it's easy from afar. It's easy from afar. It's easy in this setting to read about vice lists and to say, yes, they. Yes, they. That's right, they. Friends, every single one of us has been and may still be they. Christ offers us Himself in the flesh, lived perfect life to cover to cover our lists. So we needn't have a list. The effect of that for us is a freedom from sin. Let's pray together.